Howdy. We've arrived. Our first interview on this long journey exploring the fake news landscape. This week, you'll meet Julie Mastrini, Director of Media Bias Ratings and Marketing at All Sides, a platform designed to evaluate bias, provide balanced news, and promote diverse perspectives and real conversation. We start with a description of trust in news, its causes and consequences, and then explore how Julie and her colleagues diagnose and deliberate about media bias for their published reports. From there, we explore various forms of media bias and scrutinize alternative forms of evaluating the news media. Finally, as we will come to do regularly, we conclude with our guests' advice for how to stay civically informed in the age of digital information. So, welcome back, enjoy the conversation, and be sure to share this episode's artifact that contains leaks to important references from the podcast. Now, Julie Mastrini. Hey there, and welcome back to From His Talk. This week, I'm very excited to welcome Julie Mastrini, Director of Marketing and Media at All Sides. Julie, welcome to From His Talk. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. It's my pleasure. Yes. So Julie was quite prompt with the response on the invitation to come on and discuss media bias and, and kind of what All Sides does in this space. I think as we continue our discussion on fake news, we'll see a primary role that media bias or at least perceived media bias plays in this phenomenon for better and for worse. So same question I'm going to ask everyone to tee up each episode. Can you provide what the term fake news means to you and whether you see this term, this phenomenon as a new phenomenon or something that has been with us for time immemorial? Well, fake news, I've seen it used a lot of different ways during the Trump years, people would kind of use it to mean any news that is, uh, sometimes they would mean it, they would use it to mean biased news. Sometimes they would use it to mean news that's actually made up, like totally false stories. And then sometimes they would use it to mean like um, just misleading information or like misleading narratives. So I've seen it used all those different ways. Um, and it kind of depends on your perspective. To me, Personally, I always felt like uh, fake news and media bias kind of went together because a, a story can be so biased that it ends up becoming untruthful. And uh, that's kind of what commentators are getting at when they call something fake news. But again, we've seen it used many different ways. At all sides, we typically talk about media bias and we explain how bias manifests and what it is and how journalists show bias. And we believe that teaching people to spot bias can then help them to actually uncover the truth and decide for themselves rather than being unfairly manipulated by partisanship or the manipulation of information, which is so prevalent in the press today. Interesting. Okay. So you said in the press today, so does that mean you view this as a primarily or fundamentally a new phenomenon? Well, I feel like my perspective is limited by my age. From what I've read, though, like I wasn't there in the past, right? But partisan media has always been with us. It's just gotten worse in recent years. The digital age has changed the game. I think the Trump years really changed the game. Media outlets that were previously at least achieving a veneer of objectivity and balance 
fell off the rails and became very clearly left biased during the Trump years. We saw a lot of uh, media outlets actually get worse. He just kind of had that effect on the political landscape, which affects the journalistic landscape. So I wouldn't say it's totally new, but we're kind of dealing with a different beast now with digital media, social media, um, the polarization of America. There's less overlap amongst political cohorts now. And you can even see that in like politicians voting records, how polarized the two sides have become. And obviously there's more than two sides, but the main ones that we tend to think about. So I'd say it's gotten worse, not necessarily new, but at least when I was studying journalism in college, I was taught about traditional standards to shoot for Mm. and standards are ideals. It's like things that might not be perfectly achievable, but that you should strive for and aim for. Sure. So while it might be impossible to totally get rid of bias from your writing, as a journalist, there are steps you can take and ways that you can write that hide your personal political perspective from the reader Mm. and just give them all the information that they need to decide for themselves. But what we're seeing in the news media industry now is a pushback against the concept of objectivity. So news journalists will actually say we need to get rid of objectivity or objectivity is impossible. And what you get then is advocacy journalism uh, just by default. Like if you're not striving to be balanced and objective, then you're being an advocate for one side or the other. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a shift in how journalists think. And as a result, Americans trust in news media is lower than ever, really. The U.S. consistently ranks last or close to last amongst 46 countries in news trust. So we have a big problem. Uh, And all sides really just tries to make this transparent and help people to kind of sort through the muck. Okay. So that's, yeah, I think there's a lot of great stuff there. Uh, So the decline in news media trust, thinking of some Gallup polls here that go back to, it's a bit disjoint because they didn't do the survey continuously. But if you look at it from the 70s through modern day, uh, it's been in pretty steady decline. <clears throat> One thing that's happened, I think you're right, that there is a new dimension to this phenomenon of fake news, let's say, uh, that is technologically based. And so the broader scale dissemination of relatively ungated information, I think is having an effect. And I also think you're correct that there there was a qualitative difference in how news media chose to comport itself following the Trump years. So to try and steel man what they would say, and you touched on this here, this is a question I had for later, but we can we can address it now, which is this idea of journalistic norms and well, maybe we shouldn't give you know fair shake to both sides, or or what they would say is the way to give fair shake to both sides is to be partial to one side. And you don't want to uh treat all debates as if they have many different positions that are all morally justifiable. And so we're going to opt for framing things in a way that comports with our moral priors on the world. Uh, so one, what are your thoughts on that? And two, have you and the team at All Sides Media gotten any criticism of that? Because you guys, as far as I can tell, we'll get more into this. You take a sort of agnostic approach, which says something like, we're, we have one ruler, or maybe we have a set of rulers, but it's the same set of rulers by which we measure all media. We don't give particular treatment and we don't exempt some from the same standards as others. Yeah. So for the first part of your comments, um, yeah, we, we've we seen data from Pew that found that 55% of journalists 
say every side does not deserve equal coverage versus 76% of Americans say every side does deserve equal coverage. There's like this huge gap between what the public wants and what journalists think they ought to provide. Mm -hmm. Um, And you'll hear a lot from journalists like, well, we shouldn't cover hateful perspectives. We shouldn't cover dangerous perspectives. We don't want to amplify problematic views. So since that thinking has infected journalism, which like on the on the fringes, I'd say that's true. There are very fringe perspectives outside of the Overton window that journalists probably aren't going to cover. But the problem is, is that journalists are now treating present day debates that Americans as a whole, average Americans are having with that mentality. So conversations that Americans are having quite broadly um, are being treated with the mentality that we need to treat one side as needing to be suppressed so that people don't get the wrong idea. But again, then you just become a PR mechanism or an advocacy mechanism. If you're not trusting the reader by laying out both sides and allowing them, trusting that they'll decide the right and wrong thing for themselves, you are becoming a mouthpiece for one side. So I've had conversations with journalists around the whole like um, transgender debate, transgender medical treatments debate. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, you know, maybe for balance, you could, if you feature a trans person, you could also feature a detransitioner who feels that they were pushed into medical treatments too early or whatever, maybe. And they say, oh, but that's just a fringe view. We shouldn't cover that. But that's what all of America is talking about right now, right? The impact of these interventions on youth and uh, that is the conversation. So to not include one side of it is the wrong choice. Now, when it comes to like super fringe stuff, like I don't think journalists need to cover all sides of should slavery be legal, right? That's like settled. Americans are not debating that. That's not part of the public discourse right now. You don't need to, you know, that's outside the Overton window, right? Um, but for things that are currently in the discourse, you can't be deciding that one side is hateful or wrong and not covering it, right? Because we're in the process of working out these moral quandaries and and these questions and these policy initiatives and how our government should work around these issues. Yeah. So big shift in journalism. I'm sorry, I forget the second half of your question. Mm. I know there was a second piece. No, pardon me. Have you, uh, you or anyone at All Sides Media of whom you're aware faced any pushback because you guys do apply the same set of the same rubric, let's say to each media organization, and you're not giving this partial shake to one side versus the other or versus another. I would say that one important thing is that we try to repeat that while we do offer, we actually offer services to journalists and newsrooms to audit their, their news content for bias, and then give them consulting on how to remove political bias from their writing. Mm -hmm. We offer that and we think that's good. And there's a place for that in the media landscape. But we also are fine if you're a liberal media outlet or a conservative media outlet, as long as you're transparent about that. There are plenty of newsrooms and maybe they're more commentary based, but some of them are covering breaking news and they're very open about the fact that they're on the left or right. We actually think that's good, too, because then you can get that perspective. Right. Uh, Yeah. So we're not of the mindset that everybody needs to be in the middle or even that partisan journalism shouldn't exist. It's just a problem when we only have partisan journalism. There's nobody striving for those traditional journalistic standards. There's pretty much room for everybody. But what we're seeing is that we're seeing just way more media at the polls 
and very little of it in the middle. So, you know, when we're evaluating these media outlets for bias, it can definitely be tricky because you're right. We're like using a set of standards and we're very careful about how and when we apply it. Like we're not going to accuse a newsroom of bias if they're showing slant in an opinion piece. That's what an opinion piece is supposed to be, right? We're really looking for bias in breaking news articles, like hard news articles where bias shouldn't be present from newsrooms that are claiming to be, you know, giving you just straight facts and news. Um, but whereas there's other outlets that are like, we're, we're conservative, we're conservative media. We're like, cool, great. We love that you're transparent, but we're basically of the mind that like, if you're not going to be transparent about your bias, we'll make it transparent. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so just to help the readers to understand what angle information is coming from. Um, so as far as pushback on our approach, we haven't really gotten much that I'm aware of. Um, people seem to generally appreciate and like what we're doing. Um, sometimes we will get feedback that like, uh, different ideologies don't fit into our left, right spectrum, like, uh, libertarianism. Is it left or right? Well, there are left libertarians and right libertarians, Mm -hmm. and they kind of delineate on how they view like social issues for one. Uh, and they don't really fit neatly into our categories. So we're also very clear that our left to right spectrum is simple and it's not going to encompass all the different nuances of political thought. Like if you have a, um, yeah, it, 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 so we, we run into that a bit, like there are different political ideologies, right? Like, you know, people who are, so maybe they're like socially conservative, but, um, economically liberal or, or vice versa or something like sure. that's kind of hard to fit into a left, right spectrum. So there's all these nuances and you can fractionate out political thought endlessly. Um, a lot of, and many people don't even fit into a left, right box. Um, we're just trying to create a general map, just a good starting point, a map of bias, help you understand that yes, your news is coming from political angles and you're going to have to be on guard against political manipulation in the information that you're consuming. Well, that seems fair enough. And I think that the the forthrightness of saying, hey, this is one dimension along which bias can manifest, and it's not going to be a comprehensive measure, and it's not designed to be, is fine. Uh, there's this notion of, of formative dimensions, meaning something like uncorrelated aspects that all reflect a central theme, so or that are all contributing to a central theme. So something like media bias, maybe there's a bunch of dimensions that contribute to that. Um, and this partisan angle between kind of a U.S. centric, let's say, version of right versus left is fine for it to be one dimension. And I would say it's useful for people, particularly, I think you touched on this, which is for the outlets that are not transparent about from where they come, it is arguably, and we'll get more into this later, a very helpful tool to say, okay, here's some evidence that indicates that there is a particular perspective embedded within the information I'm taking. So, okay, uh, we'll switch a little bit more into like the weeds of media bias now. Uh, I won't ask you to tell me why people should care about it because I think you've done a, a great job of of providing such things. I'm going to ask an unfair question, and you can totally punt on this, but do you have any cardinal examples of media bias? And here's the reason I'm asking this, by the way. So I'm I'm doing a PhD, which is like a great exercise and poorly managed opportunity cost. The 
The thing that fascinated me about fake news was I saw that increasingly people were referring to the scientific quote unquote literature on information maladies, fake news, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, okay, well, that's good. They're to try, I thought they're trying to take a more rigorous approach, and some people are, to be sure. But I thought, oh, great. Uh, rather than just hear a bunch of journalists and podcasters talk about fake news and what it is and what it isn't, I'll go read the scientific literature. And in the scientific literature, there's like at least eight or nine definitions. They overlap with each other to varying degrees or sometimes not at all. And yet it's all talked about as if it's the same thing. And so when they go to measure these things, the operationalization, we're going from the idea to the measure, there's a bit of discordance there that I don't think is appreciated. And one of the things I hope to bring out in this series is that. And so I'll be asking versions of this question to many of my guests. But since since all sides is focused on this particular bias paradigm, do you have some examples of media bias that are particularly salient to you? I think that there's so many things. And it's weird too, because sometimes like I'll identify a new type of media bias that just cropped up, right? Something new the journalists are doing. So in the last like three years, that was what I call subjective qualifying adjectives. So um, that is when a journalist will qualify something with an adjective to slant your view of it. So it's not a piece of legislation. It's um, harmful legislation or it's anti-trans legislation or it's radical legislation, right? Or um, even they did this with Trump a lot. They would say he made a baseless claim, his baseless claim. Well, that's the journalist qualifying the claim and telling you how to think about the claim instead of just saying, here's what the claim was. Here's what we know. You decide if it has basis. Because typically when people make a claim, it's because they think they have a basis for it, right? So for the journalist to be like, oh, it was a baseless claim. Uh, that's the journalist deciding for you something that is largely subjective, something that's probably being debated in the discourse. Um, so those were, so those adjectives are something I've just been seeing a lot. Um, and they're pretty easy to spot. I think journalists have a difficult job though, because they want to provide context and then they run into this issue, uh, where, well, like, should I call them an extremist group or should I let the reader decide if they're an extremist group? What if I feel like I really know that they're an extremist group, right? But mm -hmm. then you run into this problem where people will be like, um, you know, like, I'll see, it's like, who's deciding, right? right. Um, so like, and I'll see that a lot with qualifiers, like, oh, they're a far right organization, but you never really see far left organization. So it's like the journalists are a little more, um, uh, let's say, they have more of an allowance for the groups on the left and they won't call them extreme or far left as much, but they will very easily say that about groups on the right. Um, do you just get into territory that's difficult? So that's, I mean, that's, I think that's the form of media bias that disturbs me the most because it's just so obvious, but it's so common. Um, and then, you know, the one that we talk about a lot that I think that people um, find interesting is word choice bias. And that one's pretty easy because it's basically just when you listen to people on the left and right, um, they are typically going to use different words to describe the same thing. And it, re and it reveals how they think about the issue. So like, is it abortion or reproductive rights? Right? Like that's a pretty obvious example. Um, and then, uh, 
you know, is it even now we're seeing we see a lot around like immigration, like is it an illegal alien or an asylum seeking migrant? Right. So one of them reveals the softer sort of viewpoint on people crossing the border and the other reveals the angle where this is an illegal act. And right. So you can Mm -hmm. see how the left and right think. So those are kind of the easy ones. Um, During 2020, there was really interesting stuff going on around the words protest versus riot. Um, Was it a riot or a protest? Um, Was it a peaceful protest or a violent riot? Like stuff like that um, is uh, really shaping the reader's view if they're not paying attention themselves. Um, And uh, I think that, you know, with social media, it's like people can kind of dig a little deeper and like corroborate claims and things like that. But uh, journalists have to be careful about this. And we have a lot of newsrooms now that are kind of asking for our guidance on this. Like, how do we choose more neutral terminology that still conveys what's going on? Uh, it's a challenge. Some of them are easy. Sometimes there's like an obvious, like neutral term that you can use Mm -hmm. or a way to describe what's going on without hitting like inflammatory language. Um, but other times it's kind of tricky. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, we, we have long conversations about this at all sides and sometimes we'll disagree, you know, depending on, we have people on the left and the right and in the middle on our team. And we have conversations about what's appropriate and, um, it gets kind of interesting. Sometimes we even publish those conversations on our blog so that people can kind of see the thinking on both sides. Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So people should check that out. I'll try and make sure to link that in the episode artifact as well. We'll have probably five or six links around media bias and some of the studies we reference as, uh, as well there. So let's take, cause I'm going to be talking to a bunch of people who tend to come from, I would say the left half of the political spectrum on this. It just is a, it's not an accident. It's a function of the different types of careers people choose. But in order to try and defang some of the criticism that I could hear in my head with that response, they'll say, well, weren't there some, weren't there some claims from Trump that were baseless? And I, what would you say to that? Is it that you are in principle opposed to subjective qualifiers? Are you in principle opposed to qualifiers? Or is it the kind of flippant subjective nature of it that is reflective of bias? It's more the latter. It's more so that like they will, I think journalists will use qualifiers prematurely, like before all the information has come out, we were seeing like the baseless claim of election fraud, right? They were saying that before lawsuits had played out, right? Um, Things like that. So sometimes it's just premature and some qualifiers are objective, like the blue sky, right? Probably no one's going to quibble with that. Or the lone objector, one person objected. The lengthy bill, it's 500 pages long. Um, But just those subjective ones, I find that uh, they're often inserted when there is a very loud and clear other side to the issue who would totally disagree with that. So it's, it's hard to create like a hard and fast rule for journalism, because so much of it's contextual and dependent on what we know and what we don't know. And I think caution is really the best approach. Just be cautious. And uh, you're right. That That is the pushback we get, like, or even something like um, the, the one lately has been like the anti-LGBT legislation. It's like they'll say, but it is, it is against LGBT people. 
And really, I think what journalists need to be challenged to do is actually to construct an argument from the other side in their minds and say, like, well, what what would somebody on the other side say about this? Right. So like in that case, the right would say this legislation isn't against people. It's for people because we're trying to protect them from harm. Mm -hmm. So when you say it's anti-LGBT, it sounds like we hate these people. We're against them. But really, we're actually for them. We want them to be treated with care rather than harm. And we believe that the current medical interventions constitute harm rather than care. Right. So if you can construct the argument on the other side, then you might say, "Okay, I shouldn't describe it this way. Maybe I'll quote somebody who's for it and quote somebody who's against it. And then the reader can decide if it's for or against people or if it's good or bad or whatever. Um, so like I said, it's always, it's going to be hard to be like perfect at this. Um, and some qualifiers like are generally agreed upon. Like if you say it was landmark legislation, right? Like, or like unprecedented, something like that. Maybe that is like a Roe v. Wade being overturned was sort of an example of something that kind of warranted a qualifier of how like monumental it was and far reaching, impactful, things like that. But I think journalists should err on the side of just stating the facts. And again, this is just for breaking news stories, coverage that's supposed to be objective. You can use all the qualifiers you want in your opinion pieces. <laughs> like <laughs> that's what that's for. Uh, so just really getting back to those more like traditional journalistic standards. I think that journalists don't even see that some of this is slipping into their news coverage. Agreed. I think that there's two antecedent causes of that. Uh, and there's probably many more, but I can think of two right now. One is a, and this, there's some intention with each other actually, which is interesting. I see some news outlets that try and opt to reduce any complex social topic to a form of material calculus. And then we can just be quote unquote, like economically rational. Um, and I don't mean that just dollars and cents. I mean like the rational decision-making model so-called, and we can presume away all the nuance. And then, and then there really is only one right answer. And who cares if I'm giving short shift to a different perspective. Simultaneously, I see something, you know, I need to probably look more into like the curriculum for schools of journalism, et cetera. But you certainly see this in the, that peer research you mentioned, for example, the, that Delta between the public and the journalists in terms of, uh, degree to which they, the extent to which they agree with the notion that they should cover all sides equally. Uh, that is particularly pronounced in the youngest generation. The youngest generation of journalists are the least likely to agree with that. Yep. The, I view that as something like an embodied form of quote unquote, like repressive tolerance as enacted in media, right? So this kind of, they would argue it's not philosophical, but it is, it's okay. Uh, worldview that says something like, no, 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 like every act is an expressive form of politics. And therefore we have to advocate on the side that is morally righteous. And it's very convenient because they're always on the morally righteous side, which should give people a little bit of pause, I would think, but I'll leave that there. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's kind of the, I feel like, uh, that, that idea you described is just seeped into everything. That's why even like the, the, like brands are so political politicized now, like which brand you shop at because everything's yeah. An expression of your like political beliefs and ideology. And so journalists are coming into their profession with that idea and the idea that they need to be they need to be shaping the world and shaping the future. 
So they no longer see themselves as neutral third-party observers conveying information. They're seeing themselves as having um, like a duty to shape the world in the right direction. So it's a bit of a different thing, you know, and I, and I get why people want to think of themselves that way, but it does stray from what journalism, let's say was supposed to be. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or like maybe the like platonic ideal of journalism. I suspect yeah. that that has always been with journalists. My understanding is that even in the revolutionary period here in the States, journalists was not held as a particularly uh, noble profession. And you can certainly see uh, even as, you know what most people consider esteemed publications like the New York Times in the 20th century go off the rails with some of this stuff in a very consequential way. Well, one example I'll give that's been very concerning in the last couple of years is the Associated Press. Hmm. Uh, we have them rated lean left, even though they were center for years, because, and I'll say it was during the Trump years, we just started to see them inserting a lot of bias and like subjective analysis in what was supposed to be hard news pieces. And the concerning thing about AP showing, and they've even, their bias has been a topic of news coverage, mostly from conservative media outlets mm. um, that uh, are concerned about like changes to the AP style book uh, that they see as uh, political and aligning with left wing thought uh, rather at the expense of objectivity or fairness. And the concerning thing about AP is that they're a wire service. So local newsrooms fill gaps in their coverage with AP wire stories. So if AP is biased, you're seeing that bias in newsrooms across the country at the local level. So uh, their impact is very far reaching. And they were always like the gold standard of journalism. And I'd say their reputation has definitely slipped. And uh, it's because of these sort of changes in the mindset of journal, I mean, I don't know how much it's changed, but definitely it's become apparent that their idea of being objective often aligns with how the left interprets events. So yes, yeah, so that gets into a point I want to talk about in just a moment, with which leads into how all sides does its ratings. Um, the style book thing is a big issue, I would say, and it sounds like that's a perspective we share. And I think people, if they think about that for a few minutes, will will totally agree with that, even if they don't agree necessarily with how I would write a style book, how you would write a style book. The idea that you would have a standard for professional norms that is shifting, you know, there's this idea that, well, it's all about the processes of generating news that matter. And who cares if we have a perspective? And also, like, we don't have a perspective. It's kind of the implicit and sometimes explicit statement. I, I'm not sure if you saw the debate between Douglas Murray, Matt Taibbi, Malcolm Gladwell, and Michelle Goldberg? I didn't. Okay, so this was a Monk debate last year. For all of my academics watching this, I understand the way Monk debate measures who won the debate, changes over time, so comparing across debates is not very useful. And also, the way they measure it is perhaps not as rigorous as it could be. But you know, it's a it's relative. It's not so much about who really won the debate. That they essentially take different versions of polls of the audience prior to and then after, and they take that delta as indicative of who won the debate. The problem is, well, there's a lot of problems with how they do it. But anyway, still, you can get a relative assessment about within an individual debate how well it performed. And the side with Murray and Taibbi uh, comported themselves much more appropriately. Were uh, I would argue 
much more direct in their kind of criticisms of the other side's argument and did not stray into ad hominem or reading in intention. And actually in the time since Malcolm Gladwell has come out and said like, Hey, I didn't take this seriously enough. And he, for many people as reflected in the YouTube comments, I think Malcolm Gladwell holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts because he's a compelling author and, and podcaster. Uh, he can weave together a narrative in a very compelling way, but it was not his best moment. And it was more reflective of the type of superficial thinking that goes into his writings on, for example, implicit bias, than it was his more exciting and engaging episodes on his uh, revisionist history podcast, as an example. So as uh, there's something I'll make sure to link in the notes, I think it's a very instructive debate. And uh, for those who follow the news media as much as you or I, perhaps, this was a few weeks prior to Matt Taibbi coming out as being the primary journalist on the Twitter files. So as uh, just kind of a moment in time in the journalistic conversation. So as we go to All Sides media ratings, I saw that originally it looked like All Sides was referring to a paper by, by I guess it's Grossclose and Milio. Uh, and what they looked at was, and you feel free to clean this up, essentially they looked at uh, partisan think tanks and policy groups and the lexica uh, lexicons that the different sides were using. And then they said, okay, well, we can map, or I shouldn't say partisan think tanks, think tanks and policy groups. They looked at their lexicons. They mapped the different lexicons of these groups onto members of Congress to see who was adopting which kind of, I don't want to say talking points, but maybe uh, lexical framing is a better way to say it. And then they said, okay, great. So now we have some measure of which lexicons correspond with uh, a left-right bias, let's say. And we can now apply that as a measure of partisanship, partisan bias, to news media. And this is a, a common technique. Uh, there's a paper from MIS Quarterly that's probably one of my favorite papers, does something similar looking at bias between Encyclopedia Britannica and Wikipedia in the exact same way. Mm. So... Uh, can you speak to that? And then can you also speak to some of the additional ways all sides rates uh, news media bias? Yeah. So we're very, we have multiple methods for rating bias and I can talk about the methods that are like our original research, but the study that you mentioned is also something that we would take into account. If we find a third party study where we think the methodology is worthwhile we'll factor that into our ratings. And for in the like more early days of our ratings, we were relying a lot on, on that study for some of our ratings. Since then, we've done our own analyses and we have a couple of methodologies that we use. And the idea behind our methodologies is that we're trying to balance input from experts and average Americans. So we're sort of creating like an aggregate bias rating that's based on input from both of those groups. And when I say experts, I mean like people like, well, I guess like me, who's like has her, her head in media bias every day, people who work at all sides, who are always thinking about and analyzing media bias. And we train our newcomers on how to see types of bias and how to conduct bias reviews. So um, the expert input would be a method that we call editorial reviews. So that's when a group of people equally balanced with usually two people left, two center and two on the right 
who review the works of a media outlet and then come to a consensus on its bias. And even within that, you'll have disagreement. Often, like, there's often disagreement amongst the reviewers, right? With the the left and right disagreeing, or sometimes the center will disagree with the right, or the center will disagree with the left, or whatever it may be. Um, But we have a system for creating, um, like, an aggregate score. It's not a rubric. We're not, like, giving a scorecard for each article or anything. Um, but we do ask the, the reviewers to provide a number on a scale and our scale goes from uh negative six to plus six left to right. And we'll ask the reviewers to provide a score and then we take a weighted average. So that's how we get a number on our, we call it the all sides media bias meter. And mm-hmm. then we put the news outlet into a category of left, lean left, center, lean right or right. And the bias meter score allows for some nuance because what we were finding is that a lot, lot, lot of media outlets were falling like somewhere between center and lean left. And we were, you know, we could put them into one category, but it wasn't telling the full story if they were like really on that borderline. So that was kind of the impetus uh, behind coming up with the bias meter. And I wish I could say there were an equal number of outlets towing the line between center and lean right, but they like barely exist. I think there's like one that falls into that category. So, um, and again, you had mentioned just, you know, what type of person chooses this as a profession has a lot to do with how bias manifests in the media. Um, And even geography, a lot of media outlets are based in Washington, DC and New York, which are blue cities. So um, they're kind of in their own bubbles. Um, and then another method that we use is the blind bias survey. And this is where we actually pull average everyday Americans and we take media content, we strip it of any branding. So the reader doesn't know where this came from. So they're not looking at the, the content and going, Oh, it's CNN. Obviously they're left. They actually don't know where the content came from. And we believe that that helps us to get um, a more honest estimation of the bias because they're not factoring in their preconceived notions of the brand. They're just looking at what the news report says. So we'll our blind bias surveys will be taken by like a thousand Americans across the political spectrum and across the country. And then we come up with an aggregate rating taking all of this uh, data into account. And that's the final bias rating that you see on our site. So a couple different methods. Um, and we also ask people to give feedback. So you can go on our website and actually vote on if you agree or disagree with the rating. And then that doesn't determine our ratings. It's not like a majority rule system. But if we see that a lot of people are disagreeing with the rating, we'll be like, okay, maybe we need to look at them again uh, and do more research. So, and bias changes over time. We're constantly, constantly running these methods on these media outlets. It's just ongoing work. Um, I mean, like our bias reviews, if they're more than like two years old, it's like, time to do another one because editors change, the political landscape changes. Um, many media outlets are consistent in their bias and our data is super consistent, but some of them swing around a little bit, mm-hmm. not left to right, but you know, maybe they'll switch from, you know, left to lean left or lean left to center or lean right to right and back. So we're constantly running these reviews. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Can I just want to double click on one of the things you talked about, the editorial review? Yeah. Because I suspect that this is a common approach across media bias or media rating organizations. Now, how it's done, I imagine, differs. But you mentioned you have this kind of 
politically diverse panel that undergoes an editorial review of some news organization. And you try and reach consensus. But can you walk me through what that looks like? What are you all looking at as part of that review process? We're looking for the types of bias that are outlined in the guide, uh, 16 types of media bias that is publicly available on all sides. And that goes through types of bias like slant, sensationalism, word choice bias, subjective qualifiers, which I mentioned earlier, um, and bias by omission, photo bias. So all these types of bias that we've identified, we uh, train the panelists on what that means, uh, how we define it. And then that's really what they're looking for is these different types of bias. So we do have a bit of structure to the editorial review in that sense. Uh, but also, even with that structure, it's very subjective. Like I said, like people will often disagree on whether something's biased or not. Often there's broad consensus and it's pretty obvious that the writing is slanted. Um, but that's that's mostly what we're looking for. And and we decided that, you know, we weren't going to use a rubric or something because you kind of need the the human estimation, if that makes sense. Like rather than a mathematical equation, like um, if you have a really biased headline, but a neutral photo and you score the headline as like a five on the bias scale and the photo is like a one and then you like average it, you get somewhere in the middle. But most people would probably say, well, that really biased headline kind of overrides the neutral photo, right? It's still giving me this super biased perception. So we figured that it needs to be this like human review that allows for subjectivity. And we're kind of trying to get a sense of what people on the left center and right, what their like average takeaway is from the media outlet. So it's definitely not easy. We'll get into some interesting conversations around it. Yes, you should. Well, not should. Uh, it would be interesting to be a fly on the wall in one of those things. And I think that would actually be very instructive for folks. So one thing I will push back on a little bit there, I'm, and this is not a particular criticism of all sides, because I have the sense that this is done earnestly and as rigorously as a kind of organic process can be done. Uh, but to the point about having a rubric, one thing that is beneficial about having a rubric is we have this kind of moving baseline or shifting baseline problem. We talked about how editors change major uh, magazines or, or newspapers. And so you're always kind of measuring against something relative to something else. But having a rubric is nice because it's static and you can say, hey, this is, if I lay down a ruler and I measure a table, it is reliable and that it's going to give me a consistency of measure where you get much more of this kind of I'm going to say touchy-feely, but I don't mean that as like disparagingly as it sounds, aspect of, oh, we're going to be in you know conversation around this. Where I think that that approach is richer is that it will, one, it allows for exchange from people of different points of view. So you have this ability to cross-check each other's bias as you undergo the process um, of, of the editorial review. At the same time, it also doesn't cause you to lose the uh, forest through the trees, you know, you can kind of keep the holistic picture in mind, but have you, or has the team at all sides undertaken any form to try and validate? And when I say validate, I mean that in a psychometric sense, not that the ratings are useless. Obviously I don't believe that. Otherwise I wouldn't have asked you on, but to try and validate the measures you're using to test the, the reliability of the scores to try and, cross-validate, meaning use a different media rating apparatus 
And maybe this is what you do with these different, the surveys, the kind of crowd-based uh, ratings, et cetera, to try and say, have we converged on the thing we're trying to measure? The blind bias surveys somewhat account for that, where they're less um, about the conversation and the like subjective estimations. And we're actually, we actually ask people to provide a rating on an 11 point, hopefully I pronounce this right, Likert scale. Um, so it's left to right scale with like the middle point being center and then the poles being left and right. And we actually have them choose. It's not a rubric, but we are not getting their like subjective thoughts. Like, well, I felt like this was what we're just asking them to like mm -hmm. provide a, a point on a scale where they would place that media outlet. Um, but yeah, we've just found that, that like, and every time we do an editorial review, review we do a pretty in-depth write-up on the, we call it source pages. So if you mm -hmm. look up the Washington Post on our website, you can see their source page where it explains their bias rating. And we put some details of the editorial review there, especially if there was back and forth, uh, which doesn't happen like quite as often as you'd think. It, it happens, but often there is consensus because our reviewers are, you know, being as honest as they can, even if like the bias of the piece aligns with their perspective, they tend to be honest, but and being like, yeah, this is a biased piece based on the types of bias. I can see slant here. I can see bias by omission, whatever it is. Um, but I do get what you're saying. And, you know, we are always like trying to, we, we take feedback, we hear feedback. Um, We've been working on like an um, AI bias detector uh, to see if we can train. Uh, I said, but I don't know if algorithm is the right word. Probably not. It's not my uh, realm. I'm not the one personally developing this. But basically, can we put a news article into an AI and have it detect types of bias? Um, so we're open to like different ways to do this. And especially at scale, it can be hard to do it all at scale, uh, especially with the human reviews. Mm -hmm. I'm still partial to the human reviews, uh, because political discourse is very complex and there's often like nuance there and deeper meaning that I think a machine is going to have trouble grasping. So, you know, we're confident in our methodologies. And if you look at how other bias rating organizations do things, some of them have the human reviews. Um, some of them are unclear about what they're looking for or how their ratings come about, especially the ones that are rating accuracy or uh, like how... Uh, what's the word that I, is accuracy? The word that's been being used, um, credibility, things like that. We don't get into that territory because then you get into the problem of having to say who's right and wrong. So we try to put things into buckets of like left and right. And we'll say, well, this is the perspective of the left. This is the perspective of the right. And we're not going to tell you who's right and wrong but we'll tell you what perspective this information is coming from. But you have a lot of these uh, people are now very concerned about misinformation. So they're kind of wanting an authority on information to tell them what's right and wrong. And we're seeing some organizations crop up that are doing like credibility ratings or accuracy ratings. And that's just really tricky territory because you're going to anger one side or the other. I'm not saying there isn't an objective truth out there. There definitely is. But uh, the problem with these kind of like 
accuracy or credibility ratings is that inevitably they end up becoming partisan themselves. Um, one of the credibility rating websites, like all the outlets that we rate on the left, they had high credibility scores. And then all the outlets we rate on the right had low credibility scores. So then you had lawmakers and they were being used by a teacher's union. Um, in, in classrooms, they'd been endorsed. And so then you had Republican lawmakers writing in, uh, saying that they were concerned that the union was backing this credibility rating service because it was biased against the right and all these things. So you just get into a lot of issues. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, we do issue some original fact checks sometimes if it's within the bounds of what our team can feasibly fact check and look into. Um, and we'll break down narratives on both sides and and things like that. Okay, well, that's instructive. Yeah, I so I've I've at least one other, and I think it's probably the biggest player in the media rating space that I'm hoping to hear from for this series, and I'd like to get their thoughts on on why they are more apt to do credibility assessments, uh, and and to give some thoughts and maybe some pushback there. I I do, I do agree with you. There is an objective truth for many of the stories that are covered. Uh, I don't, I have deep suspicion of someone who says, I'll be the authority that you can go to, to verify that here's, here's so philosophically I'm averse to that because I'm, well, I've been told I'm somewhat difficult to work with because I just like refuse to like, uh, presuppose that, 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 for example, is a type of organization that exists in some neutral space. Um, and it may not even be that for the organization I have in mind, I don't even know if they were founded to be taken advantage of in a partisan way or be leveraged in a partisan way, but it does seem that that has been the case. So you'll say something, you said that, uh, for example, you've got the left half of the spectrum is vastly disproportionately rated, uh, more credible than the right half of the spectrum. Now, of course it means this is going to depend on what you mean by left and right and how wide you draw that Overton window from which to select, because you can select from the fringes to amplify things in a, in a way that is not reflective of the general media landscape on a particular side of an issue. However, this goes back to what I was mentioning earlier, and it'll be a theme throughout this podcast series, I hope, which is, okay, not so much the who decides, even though that's an interesting question, but given that someone will decide how are we cross-checking this? And so what is happening is that increasingly news organ, uh, media organizations such as the one to, I think, that we're both referring, and, and fact-checkers are increasingly creating the referent material by which researchers in the information malady and digital information space refer for their data sets. So it becomes a tautological exercise in some way where, well, we did research on fake news. Okay, well, how'd you determine fake news? Well, we appealed to these folks. Well, how did they deter? You see what I'm saying? And it becomes this exactly. kind of closed loop. Yep, and exactly. so part of me says, like, I'm not particularly a fan. Of, like, you haven't really said anything new there, right? It's like, okay, it's an interesting exercise. It's a data point as far as I'm concerned. But for some, but it is structurally advantaged relative to all sides. And I'm just being frank in that they, the people who are willing to say we're the authority have much more uh, vitality and vigor in in their in their claims to institutional credibility than all sides, which says no, no, no. Like there's 
trade-offs that we're considering. And we don't, we're not willing to anoint ourselves, you know, overseers of the news media, the only overseers of the news media landscape. So how would you respond to that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I agree because obviously even to, like I'm, I'm the director of bias ratings, but also the director of marketing. So it's like, mm-hmm. how do we confer authoritativeness uh, without moving into the space of telling people who's right and wrong and then losing authority with one side or the other, uh, which is the danger there. So we're very comfortable with saying that we are an authority on bias, that we're an authority on uh, like analyzing news media for partisan leanings and telling you where that is coming from and what political perspectives or interests are informing how the information is shaped. We're very comfortable with that. We are trying to explore ways to do to address misinformation. I don't personally like that word, but um, but it is something people are very concerned about right now. Um, how do we address that with sort of the all sides approach without picking winners and losers, so to speak? And so we do have a section of our website that's dedicated to that issue where people can explore different narratives and uh, explore fact checks and uh access resources that'll help them to like critically analyze news stories on their own. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult space. It's a line that we've thought a lot about. Uh, like I said, we're currently not doing accuracy ratings, uh, and the people that do, they do get these kind of big contracts with, uh, large organizations who just want to be able to say, Oh, well, you know, we've contracted with this group who's going to assess this information. So, uh, you know, we got that covered despite the fact that it might lack integrity or maybe even like some of these organizations, they don't. So one thing that we've noticed is they're not clear about having people on the left and right involved. So uh, we think that that our approach with our approach, that's crucial is that you have people who are openly left and right kind of working this out. Right. Uh, because otherwise you're just going to kind of end up partisan. It's like, uh, you'll, and when we've seen this a lot where it's like, we'll, we'll look at some of these rating services and, um, it's just not clear who's doing the rating, what's their background, what's their personal authority on the matter. And we try to be very transparent about who we are, what side we're coming from, uh, the team, my team that works on leading the bias ratings, uh, reviews is left center right like we have someone on each side who's working on overseeing those surveys and reviews and things like that and that's very intentional we don't even publish a blog without having someone on the other side review it so that's one problem i see uh and you know we 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 think our methods are the are the best at revealing the issues with news media and also empowering people to get, find the truth we don't think we have to be so heavy handed as to tell them the truth. We're trying to like empower them with tools so that they can navigate the media landscape and find the truth and uncover the truth without us having to say, Hey, they're right. And they're wrong. Right. Right. Um, We just give them the tools that they need. Mm. So I appreciate, I appreciate that perspective because it's more more bottom up than top down. Uh, I think it is in the short term, your competitors have a strategic advantage, but provided that 
this game is protracted for a meaningful amount of time, I think that all sides has a more sust- a more stable strategy. Right, um, because as time goes on, I, I think you're just going to see more of these claims of bias right. from those who are purporting to be authorities on the truth. Yeah, I view it somewhat like, and I have this, uh, I'm constantly dropping hints to the forthcoming episodes because you'll be one of the first two or three uh, that gets put out in the fake news series. But there's this woman who did some work on a theory she developed called network gatekeeping theory. And gatekeeping is something that's been tied to news media for at least a century and probably longer. But, you know, it used to be something like, well, you only have so much text you can fit on a page. And so we have to decide, okay, what well, you know, relevance, timeliness, um, and we have to, you know, configure there. Gatekeeping did not go away in the digital age, but there was an ability with the proliferation, I think of this, if I have this right, digital platforms for broadcast, but also the ubiquity of smartphones enabled distributed journalism uh, and emergent news stories to take hold independent of a traditional journalistic gatekeeping process. What I view these organizations as potentially being is a way to regate the news media ecosystem. And I'm not making a moral statement there. I just, I think it's a factual and technical matter. And by the way, we can, algorithms come into play here too, both in terms of like social media, et cetera, but also with how AI could evaluate news media credits. Happy to talk more about that at some point if, if you'd like. Um, so I, I view this as a potential way to regate, whereas that's not at all what I see from the all sides perspective. It's much more of a, you pick your information portfolio as an individual, but we're going to provide you some information that gives you an assessment about any particular entity you have in that portfolio. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I mean, there's like, Obviously, what you said about there being limitations as far as uh, the amount of space you have, right? Like, this is what we often do say there's no such thing as unbiased news. And that's kind of what we mean. Like, journalists are always going to have to choose which voices to include, which pieces of information to include. They should hold themselves to a high standard and do that in a way that's fair. But even all sides on our homepage where we have our balanced news feed, we have to curate, like, we have to choose what voices to include, which news outlets to include, and and all that. So in a way, it's like you're never going to totally remove the gates, but there's some sort of balance we're trying to strike between like information anarchy and like top-down authoritarian, like you're not even allowed to look at this perspective or consider it, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's somewhere in the middle there. And I think we do a good job of like being kind of uh, a, a tool that's neither of those things, which mm-hmm. both have their issues. So agreed. Yeah, there's some semantic warfare going on with the changing and the evolution and the bastardization of some terms. Art misinformation, I would argue, is one such term that has been subject to that. Uh, I wouldn't say for better and for worse. I would say that the bastardization has been exclusively for the worse. Mm-hmm. But people will talk about you know harm reduction and authoritative news sourcing. And it's presented as if that's the only consideration. What I'm trying to inject, and I'm sure there's greater minds than mine, is this concept of digital pluralism. And because it's like, I think that's one of the unaccounted for dimensions. That and then uh, something like perceived honesty of news media. And that's kind of, it's not independent of, but it's distinct from news media truthfulness. Right? Because I can be honest with you, even if I'm factually wrong. I could say, because you can say, oh, well, he honestly believes that, but he just happens to be incorrect, for example. 
Um, but if I'm being honest about my priors, then you can, you can discount for that when you hear me talk about something that, for example, I, I have a conflict of interest in, or, you know, I just am all note up on. Okay. So we talked about selection and omission bias there kind of implicitly and just a couple more questions. Uh, framing bias. It, this is something this, so I'll link to your 16 types of bias, uh, from the all sides site. Uh, you talked about a few examples of those. I want to know about selection slash omission bias, framing bias, context as a fact check, and the celebration parallax, which is an idea by Michael Anton from Claremont. And so maybe we could just walk through those briefly. So selection omission bias, do you view this as a as distinct from or is it part of your 16 types of bias? We choose what to cover and we choose what not to cover. Oh yeah, that's a huge type. That's one of our main types of bias that we look at is mm. bias by omission, and we'll call it story choice bias. Well, there's a couple types of this, right? There's also like uh, viewpoint bias or like omission of viewpoint. You can omit a viewpoint, you can omit a story, you can omit information. So there's all the different ways that bias by omission manifests. And we look at all of those. Um, story choice is probably the most obvious one. You can pull up two newsroom homepages. And and by the way, we we only look at digital media, some TV news content, but mostly online, not print. Uh, so you can pull up two homepages and just compare them and see uh, what does that editor find important that day? Or those editors may be plural. Uh, what are they wanting you to see first? And that's one of the most obvious ways that we're clued into bias. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. So people should be aware that what they're seeing is not just some uh, consequence of a natural law that says this is the most important information. This is someone making an assessment. And we don't begrudge them that necessarily, but there is an assessment being made about what to cover, what not to cover. Uh, what about framing bias? Uh, so something like, I choose to cover a story and I tee it up as the, maybe this is your subjective qualifier, the way I choose to cover it, as opposed to the way my cross-partisan media outlet chooses to cover it is different. We're both covering the same story, but we cover it in a different way. How does that map onto your 16 types of bias? Yeah, I would almost say that all of the types of bias are under the umbrella of framing. Okay. Uh, because that the t these types of bias we've identified are used to frame the story a certain way. And um, but if I had to like, you know, th the one type of bias we talk about a lot is slant, mm -hmm. where the journalist like plays up certain information or plays down other information to give you a slanted view. Um, it's kind of like how the like PR representatives will tell you all the good things about a product, but not any of the bad things, right? Sure. Um, so that happens with political media as well. Um, so they'll highlight, focus on, play up certain information and play down other information. So that's probably the closest like type of bias we have to framing. But yeah, like I said, in a way, almost all of these types of bias are a way to frame a story and manipulate your thinking or give you a certain takeaway. Like implicit in a lot of news stories is that uh, the journalist is framing the information so that you have a conclusion, right? Like, oh, the Republicans are terrible or the Democrats are terrible or um, our cities are are terribly run or whatever it may be. So. Okay. So yeah, that makes sense. So essentially it's like, just like we talked about the, what shows up on that homepage is not 
consequence of natural law of, of a natural law rather uh the appreciating that any piece of news that you encounter is not necessarily designed to maximally inform you so much as it might be to have you walk away with a particular assessment about the topics being covered okay and then just really quickly the last two on the on the bias front context as a fact check have you seen this phenomenon and i this is a, gets very quickly into the fractal who rates the rater yeah. thing but this is something i've seen and because i know that a lot of the repositories on which research is being conducted are derivative of some of the fact checking repositories this is a concern for me because there's no person watching the watchers uh but and maybe there doesn't need to be maybe fact checking is as good as we could ever get it and that's the best we can strive for i have my doubts but perhaps but this idea that a fact check is not actually check, fact checking the material facts of a story instead what it's it's either explaining away some context and saying it doesn't matter for some reason and not actually attacking the material statements in the article or the inverse of that which would be to say yeah this is true comma but here's some context about why you shouldn't care about it yes yep i just saw that one of the ways i think i see that the most often is when a journalist will mention a bill and then go opponents say blah 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 or critics say blah 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 but they don't include what supporters say mm. um like it's and i guess that is kind of like framing and i think where they're just trying to like insert a line that will have you be skeptical naturally skeptical of what came before it mm. um and it's sort of like they're trying to fact check it like oh the bill does this but people say it will actually do this or whatever um and we also would call that like um I'm trying to think of what type of bias. That's kind of like slant, or they or biased by omission, where they're not including the other side. Mm -hmm. um, their pointer put out a good piece in 2021 about embedded fact checking, um, and so that is like a little bit of what I was explaining earlier, where they'll say like Trump falsely claimed, blah blah blah, and instead of just giving the reader the facts and letting them decide if the claim was false, mm -hmm. the journalist is telling you that the claim is false. And sometimes journalists will do that without actually providing the evidence to back up why they're stating that it's false, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're just supposed to accept at face value that the claim was false because the journalist says he falsely <laughs> claimed something, right? Sure. Uh, so I do recommend that piece because they actually have a really interesting um, chart where they look at the word baseless and how many times it appeared in the AP, in the New York Times, mm -hmm. um, and CNN from like... 1977 till 2020 and it's like you almost never saw that word and then it just spikes right yeah. so um they called it embedded fact checking and uh we thought that was a really brilliant way to explain what's going on um and journalists are concerned with conveying the facts uh and they should be but it's like sometimes they actually are issuing a subjective determination or telling you what the facts mean, which is subjective, and they don't even realize they're doing it. They think they're conveying the objective truth when actually they're interpreting the facts for you. Agreed on that front. I think this is a an even... I like that idea of embedded fact-checking. I think that the idea that you have terms that code for that is reasonable and probably a scalable thing to, that could be checked. 
um, at least in a first pass kind of way with some sort of AI model. But I also think it's a something that's even a grander problem in that fact checkers, so-called, um, probably, not probably, I've seen evidence that they also engage in this de- or recontextualization uh, as a form of trying to uh, amplify or discredit certain information. This is not, by the way, a postmodern critique of like, there's no truth and like every yeah. side is biased. So every right. side is equally biased. Yeah. I'm not saying that, but right. but it is something with which we need to contend. All right. Last piece of on the bias front, trying to again, see how it maps onto the 16 you have. So Michael Anton wrote this piece um, called it. That's not happening. And it's good that it is. This is in 2021. And here he presents some different examples. And one particular example he presents is what he terms the celebration parallax. Parallax is an apparent difference in position on the same object seen from different vantage points. So we can see some framing here, but it's more than that. Uh, the example he provides, I think, is a, an instructive one. So if you listen to Tucker Carlson, he says something to the effect of, uh, we've got, there's a major political party in the United States that is indifferent at best to allowing for uh, mass migration to the United States because over generations, it is likely that that will favor them politically in electoral results. Um, not he's not making a claim necessarily. That there's a bunch of folks coming in from other countries voting, but just through the process of their children and grandchildren being you know natural citizens and selecting for different regions around the world that will favor this party. So what you'll see in the media is oh well that's not happening, right? That's a conspiracy theory, um, and there's pretty good evidence that that was actually the approach this current administration was going to take towards that narrative. Um, that's not happening. But then when Michelle Goldberg, actually who we referenced earlier from the Monk debate, writes in the New York Times, and I believe it was 2018, about the Georgia race between Governor Kemp and uh, then-candidate Stacey Abrams, she says something like, let's give the right what it fears that we're going to replace them, and we will. Well, okay, so it's celebrated on the editorial pages of the New York Times, but if Tucker Carlson mentions this is a conspiracy theory, same phenomenon. Yep. Um, so how would that, if it does, map onto the the bias rubric of of all sides? I, then again, not that specific story, but that general phenomenon, the celebration yeah. prolex. I think that would probably fall under the category of flawed logic. Mm. Um, that's one of the types of bias that we detail on the site. That's probably where we would point that out. Um, I saw another example of that. Uh, well, there's a lot of examples of that. Yeah. But, um, that's probably where I would place it because you're, there's like the evidence for the view here. Mm -hmm. And then they're calling it a conspiracy theory when people are actually stating that's what they want. And that's the belief. Um, so probably would say flawed logic. You could also, mm, the conspiracy theory claims that journalists are out are interesting too, because it could almost be, it's almost like a type of mudslinging where you, which is another type of bias that we detail where you're like kind of calling people names to discredit them. Mm -hmm. So conspiracy theorist is an interesting one because you can kind of throw that out and use it to discredit your opponent. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, something we've seen a lot in the last like three or four years is that term specifically. I mean, like one example of that is like the Wuhan lab leak theory was the media was very forcefully saying that that was a conspiracy theory. And then information came out 
what, two years later that it wasn't and they were kind of back or whatever. Um, or like even Facebook isn't a media company, but like, you know, are they or aren't they? Um, (laughs) but they, they would, uh, I think, I don't know if they would ban people or remove content that purported that. And then they walked back that policy because new information came out. So I see that as kind of a similar thing, um, where it's, flawed logic or like the facts are there, but people are denying it or we don't have all the facts and people are saying that can't possibly be true, you know, mm-hmm. and we're all human and it's hard uh, to make these estimations, but there's been so much bad behavior in the last couple of years from the media. Um, and then you could even do a whole podcast on how social media companies like play into it, like the suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story and, and then the government interplay with that. and. Um, it's kind of a mess, but yeah. I would yeah. Probably say well, that's, I mean, that's a great example. Matt Taibbi details this, that the 51 intelligence agents who originally said that this was a Russian information campaign or had all the hallmarks of, of said campaign, you know, that was essentially a way to discredit the story. And, and to the extent something like uh, unsolicited nude pictures of a person are removable content from social media, you could make that enforcement mechanism separate and distinct from the New York Post story. Um, cause right now there's this kind of revisionist history playing out with some people I talked to about this, where it's like, oh, well, it was just hacked materials. It's like, yeah, yeah, that was the pretext. And there were hacked materials, but you could remove that with, while still permitting the political story, which by the way, had they done that would be a much less consequential story than it turned into because now what it turned into was the way government media and social media, not in some conspiratorial way, or they, they were all leveraged in different ways to suppress that and not cover it. This goes back to the omission, you know, bias by omission. Um, yeah. So totally with you there. Okay. Um, well, you've been super generous with your time. I have a couple quick wind down questions and this has been fascinating. I hope people take away a lot from this by the way. And, and you can speak to this if you'd like, I, I know that all sides and ground news partner together. All, ground news seems to leverage all sides, media ratings as, uh, as a way to say, here's a story, for example, what are the different sides saying about this story? And again, different sides is coming from all sides uh, great contribution. And likewise, they also have based on all sides data stories that are asymmetrically being covered. Hey, this is, if you want to try and fill in your quote unquote blind spot, here's uh for the right, here's some stories that are not being covered by the right. And likewise for the left, when I put together our weekly newswire, I try and cause I have, I'm aware of my political bias, I think anyway, or I try to be. And so I try and make sure I include at least intentionally I over collect from the other side because I know that I'm probably have a bunch of filters that make those less likely to show up in my feed. And then I just try to be discerning for, okay, which of these sound like credible stories that are actually worth informing the public on. But that being said, two quick questions. And then one final question that I will ask for everyone who's a guest on the series, just like we had the one question to tee off the conversation. If someone is inspired by what we covered today, how can they support the mission of all sides? Well, there's a lot of different ways. Um, I think the most obvious way is we offer sustaining membership so people can actually support us monthly or annually to help us continue our work. Uh, we're not operating on a business model that most media outlets are operating on. Uh, we're not like trying to create clickbait that fuels ad revenue. Um uh, we don't sell anything in print, right? So a lot of what we rely on is generous support from our readers. 
Uh, but people can also, if they want to actually be involved in like the biased ratings, they can either vote on our ratings on our website and indicate whether they agree or disagree, or actually sign up to take a blind bias survey. If you go to, if you just Google all sites newsletters, there's a landing page. You can sign up to receive blind bias surveys from us. Um, I always invite people to do that because we try to get like as diverse of an array of respondents as we can. And it's kind of fun. Um, mm. I think just taking those surveys. We'll have one going out pretty soon. So um, yeah, I think those are the best ways. And then just like telling people about us, sharing the media bias chart, um, uh, whether you agree or disagree with all the ratings, uh, we do have ways for people to participate and support us. Okay. By the way, I meant to ask this earlier, how often is that media bias? I know you said the reviews of individual entities are ongoing, but how often is the media bias chart uh, republished or updated? We update it. Pretty much as soon as one of the ratings changes. So okay. sometimes we'll review a chunk of outlets and wait till all those reviews are complete to update the chart. That's usually what we do. But we've issued new versions of the rating based on like one outlet that's on it changing. Mm. Um, or like we had to issue a new chart because BuzzFeed folded BuzzFeed mm. News. So right. things like that. Just uh, it's kind of just a- as is necessary. Yeah. Okay. All right. Penultimate question. So what is a question that I have not asked you that you think I should have related to fake news and media bias? Gosh, that's a good question. I don't know. You seem to have covered it pretty well. I'm trying to think of other questions people have asked me about it. Mm. Um, And I think you covered it pretty well. Sometimes people ask like, I don't think you would ask this, but sometimes people ask like, well, which media outlets are doing the best job, which do you recommend? Mm-hmm. Right. And I can't really, and, and like our position is that like, you shouldn't just rely on one, right. Which you probably know. That's kind of the whole idea behind what we do is that if you are relying on just one, you're going to get imbalanced because no one can do a perfect job. You're going to be missing out on different perspectives, but I think that's a question I get a lot. I'm not sure if it's one that you should have asked. Those are okay. different things, I guess, but sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I I had an information portfolio that does also get revived. And I mean, this it's like a Twitter or an X, I guess now list. Um, And it's got about 300 members, individuals, organizations. And I kind of view it as a way, like a means to verify, like verification through diversification without sacrificing the potential for novel contributions. So like if someone is quote unquote controversial, it's like, well, empirically, do they break stories? And if the answer is yes, then they get included. Like, who cares if someone else who would rather me not listen to them views them as controversial? Right. Okay. All right. Now, last question. If the audience could take away one piece of advice in order to make them more resilient to media manipulation and to keep them civically informed, what would that piece of advice be that you would give them? I think it's two things, and it's things that we promote pretty well is um, read multiple sources because that's when you're really going to notice the subtle or sometimes glaring and overt differences in coverage um, or differences in uh, what information is included. And then also like familiarizing yourself with those types of bias because uh, that'll allow you to read a news article and actually be able to tell when the information is being manipulated. Mm. Um, 
and just looking for other sources. Like I was recently reading a news article where they were talking about a poll of teachers and the article was framed as Florida teachers. The article was framed as saying that teachers were leaving Florida or wanting to because of new laws that were passed dictating what they can and can't say about gender and sexuality in the classroom. And I noticed that the the journalist didn't link to the poll. So I couldn't uh, verify how the questions were asked. Right. So um, just things like that. If you start to become, if you start asking the right questions or familiarizing yourself with the types of bias, bias, by omission, that would have been like by uh, bias, by omission of source mm-hmm. source wasn't included. Um, and I actually went to another news organization who had reported on that same poll and their framing was like totally different of the poll and what the questions meant and things like that. So um, reading diverse sources, familiarizing yourself with types of bias. Excellent. Two great points. Well, Julie, thank you so much. As I mentioned, all of the major studies and and prominent links that we discussed today will be included in the episode's artifact. And uh, until next time, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. From Is to Ought is a FreedomCast Network production. For more information, please visit freedomcast.us and freedomcast.locals.com.